Well, good to be with you today, NBC. We come now to our time in the Word of God, so let me encourage you to uh, grab your Bible, to uh, turn off your email, to put the dog out, do whatever you need to focus your attention here on the Scriptures as you turn to Romans chapter 9. And then as you're turning there, let me uh, begin by talking to you about VeggieTales. VeggieTales was a show designed to teach the kids uh, of this world about the Bible in a very entertaining, uh, lighthearted, creative fashion. The creator of this series was a man named Phil Vischer. His counterpart, uh, Mike Naraki, and he both left college as, as young men in their 20s to pursue their dream of making wildly creative children's videos. At the height of their success in the late 1990s, VeggieTales videos sold 7 million copies in a single year and generated $40 million in revenue. Uh, their show was clever, uh, fun, and had cutting-edge computer animation and production quality. Uh, on a personal note, uh, my wife and I raised our kids on these movies. I think we have every single DVD somewhere in our uh, basement. I'll never forget how Bob and Larry portrayed uh, Dave and David and Goliath with David and the Giant Pickle and all kinds of classics like that, uh, silly songs with Larry about not having a belly button, and uh, oh, where, 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 where is my hairbrush? So uh, there's never, ever, 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 ever been a show like VeggieTales. We, we loved VeggieTales in our, our family, uh, but as fun as this show was and is, about a decade into uh, the success of this series, uh, the creator of this show faced a, a personal and theological crisis uh, its founder, Phil Vischer, expre expressed these deep concerns about his work in this moment of reflection. He said, I looked back at the previous 10 years and realized I had spent 10 years trying to convince kids to behave Christianly without actually teaching them Christianity. And that was a pretty serious conviction. Uh, pretty serious indeed. Vischer goes on to explain, we haven't explained to kids how they're part of the bigger story. The gospel has been turned in our culture so often into just tips for a better marriage or tips to get through college without becoming an atheist. And so kids are running to bigger stories. They're running to the Avengers. They're running to Harry Potter. They're running to Star Wars. They want to be part of a big story, and we have lost the ability to excite them that the gospel is a big story. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, friends watching our broadcast today, it is possible to read the stories of the Bible and completely miss the whole point of the larger story. I, I thought about this from my own personal parenting's perspective. Are my children getting the impression that Christianity is mainly a list of do's and don'ts or mainly the story of how God justifies the ungodly through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Parents, let me ask you, when, when you teach your children about God, are you teaching your children that they are right before God based on their behavior? Do the stories of the Bible point again and again and again to the need for a Savior, or do they point only to the need for you to get your moral act together? Uh, these are not just good questions for us parents, right? They're good questions for all Christians to be thinking about. I have to ask myself as a pastor, am I giving the folks in our church the impression that the foundation of their acceptance with God is their own good behavior? 
or the perfect behavior and death and resurrection of Jesus received by faith alone. And so let me just ask you, how would you apply this personally in your life? Do you feel like on your good days that God is smiling on you, but then on your tired and more exhausted days, God is displeased and upset with you? How does this play out in your life? Like, how does this play out in your prayer life? Do you sort of believe that God hears your prayers on your your good days, but he ignores you on your bad days? When, When you miss it. Do you envision that God is angry at you, always quick to be disappointed with a continual frown on his face when he looks at your life just shaking his head? If so, what kind of impact might that have on your own spiritual growth? Uh, Dr. Ray Pritchard, in a devotional on our passage for today, wrote this, we think I'm a failure, and so we conclude that God must hate us. Our sin separates us from a close walk with God. There is another way, friends, and these are the issues that we're going to find addressed in our text in the book of Romans today. Join me in Romans chapter 9, starting in verse 23. And with the help of the Holy Spirit, we will see in our message today entitled, Christ, the End of the Law, we will see three things. Uh, We will see, number one, the wideness of God's mercy. Number two, the, the stumbling stone of the cross. And then finally, number three, we'll see the climax of the covenant. We'll see the the wideness of God's mercy, the stumbling stone of the cross, and then we'll see the climax of the covenant. That's our plan today. Why don't we pause and ask for God's help for our time in his word. Heavenly Father, for every person tuning in and watching this today, God, I thank you for them. I ask your blessing on their life. Thank you for preserving this text, for preserving your word. And now I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would have your own sweet divine way with us. Open up our eyes, open up our ears. Most of all, open up our hearts that we might hear directly from you and help us to learn what this text means so that we might grow to be more and more like your son, Jesus Christ. It's for his sake and for his reputation we are praying. Amen and amen. Type amen if you believe it today. Movement number one, the wideness of God's mercy. Now, remember the context here in Romans. It's important to trace Paul's argument so we understand his thinking. The issue we said last week in Romans 9 was found back in verse 6, where where Paul said, it is not as though the word of God has failed. It is not as though the word of God has failed. That's the question. What about the promises God gave to his chosen people Israel, despite all of their spiritual privileges, they seem to be residing largely in unbelief. Uh, You might recall that Paul has said, no, no, God's word has not failed. He answered this objection in two ways already. He said, first of all, remember, not all Israel is truly Israel, number one. Remember that? And then secondly, he said, God has this sovereign plan, and he's ultimately in control of all of the universe. And that's where we left it off last time. And so let's pick it up now with chapter 9, verse 22. So turn there with me. And here we go. It says this, what if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. Okay, let's pause right there. We are in one of the most difficult and, and deep theologically sections of the entire Bible. I'm reminded of something that Dutch theologian Herman Bobink once said at the very beginning of his systematic theology. He said this, the study of theology demands a radical commitment 
to mystery. The study of theology demands a radical commitment to mystery, meaning when we read these words, we've got to go, wait, God is God and we are not. He's infinite, we're finite. He's infallible, we're fallible. He's perfect and we're, we're fallen. And so it just stands to reason that there are things that we would not totally understand about God that are still true, even if we can't comprehend them. In fact, if I did comprehend anything, then my God would be too small, right? That's not the God we find here in Romans chapter nine. The God of Romans chapter nine is so big and so mighty and so majestic and so sovereign and glorious. We talked about this last week. But here's the question as we pick up these verses. Who is the us that he's referring to in Romans 9, 24? The answer is that the us here is the church, both at Rome and across the world, the church, meaning this brand new movement of God made up of Jews and Gentiles that are called out of the world uh, together. Uh, do you remember in, in Jesus' life, in Matthew chapter 16, there's this story where Jesus and his disciples are they're traveling down into a place called Caesarea Philippi, and there, there was a religious mecca there, and Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, who do people say that I am? And they say, well, you know, some are saying that you're Elijah, some are saying that you're John the Baptist, others say you're one of the prophets. And then Jesus looks at them and says, what about you? Who do you say that I am? And that's when Peter, if you remember, steps up and he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then Jesus says, you know, flesh and blood, Peter, has not revealed that to you, but my father who's in heaven. And I truly, I truly, truly, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Right there, Jesus predicted that there was going to be this new movement. There was going to be this group of people called out from the world. This church, this ecclesia is the Greek word that, that Jesus announces. There's going to be a new gathering that would be made up of people all over the globe who would together worship and serve and give their lives to Jesus. That's the church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's us in Romans 9, 24. Remember back in Genesis chapter 12 where God gave Abraham a promise and he, he said to Abraham, through you, all the nations will be blessed. Paul says that's actually happening right in front of our eyes. That's what Paul divided, devoted his entire life to. This is really good news. Paul says God's word is not failing. No, instead, God's word is advancing. His kingdom is advancing. God is expanding the borders of his kingdom wider than was originally imagined, and he is now including both Jews and Gentiles in his sovereign plan of salvation. And Paul says this is exactly what was predicted in the Jewish scriptures. Uh, Paul goes on to say, look at what it says in the prophets, verse 25. As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, and I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And in the very same place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called the children of the living God. Now this is a really interesting quotation. If you go back and you study the book of Hosea, you realize he was actually talking about the northern tribes of Israel who had been scattered and taken into Assyrian captivity because of their idolatry. They were not his people, but God would turn around. He said, and I will make them my people again. But Paul feels justified in, in using this text as an argument as to why God has included 
again, the Gentiles now by his mercy as well. If the Jews were really not my people and they could be declared my people again, then Gentiles who were not my people could be declared my people. Gentiles who were not God's people, who had, we, we who had no covenant claims uh, on God, now God has sent his effectual call and many of us are being saved. We are part of his covenant people. This is really amazing news. Uh, years ago, I read a very technical book by N.T. Wright called The Climax of the Covenant. That's where we got our name for the message today. And, and I'm never gonna, I'll never forget something I read in this book. It just kind of stuck in my mind like a piece of glass forever. Uh, Wright was talking about the promises to the Jews and, and the promises to Abraham when he made this very interesting statement. He said this, The promise to Abraham and his family, declares Paul, was that he should inherit the world the whole world. This is what Paul is saying here, that the word of God is being fulfilled and there is a wideness to God's mercy. That, that's, that's really good news. Those who were on the outside, despite our unworthiness, which rightfully put us on the outside, God in his mercy has made a way through Jesus to bring us back on the inside because of his work on the cross. That's what the church proclaims. He takes those who are on the margins and brings them into the inner circle. He takes those who don't belong and, and he, he gives them a home. He takes those who were alienated and far away from God and brings them into his very own family and makes them his adopted children. There is a wideness to God's mercy. And so church, you and I have to remember that as we gather in God's name, we ought to remember that God's mercy is wide. There should never be any clickishness inside the people of God or in our witness or in our mission. Instead, we ought to devote ourselves to this truth that God's mercy is deep and long and high and wide. There's a hymn by that title named, named the, There's a Wideness in God's Mercy by Frederick Faber. It says this, there's, there's a wideness in God's mercy like the wideness of the sea. There's a kindness in his justice which is more than liberty. There's welcome for the sinner and more graces for the good. There is mercy with the Savior. There is healing in his blood. For the love of God is broader than the measure of our mind, and the heart of the eternal is most wonderfully kind. But we make his love too narrow, and false limits by false limits of our own, and we magnify his strictness with a zeal he will not own. Was there ever a kinder shepherd, half so gentle, half so sweet, as the Savior who would have us come and gather at his feet? Friends, there's a wideness to the mercy of God. Paul says, God's word has not failed. God's word is being fulfilled right in front of our eyes. Our current situation is exactly what God said would happen. Uh, he goes on to say this from the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the Israelites will be like the sand of the sea, only the remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. God's word has not failed, Paul says. The word of God said that God would always, always, always preserve a remnant. God would preserve his people. Uh, we must remember that even in the church today when we feel like we're the only one. When Maybe you're a high school student listening to this message and, and you feel like you're like the only Christian at your high school. That's not true. God will always preserve a remnant of his people. 
Paul goes on to quote Isaiah in a different place in verse 29. He says, it is just as Isaiah said previously, unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom. We would have become like Gomorrah. Here, it says God will not allow his people, the Jews, to be completely wiped out, as was the case with Sodom and, and Gomorrah. Instead, his promise to his people Israel stands. Now listen, th- this verse is actually quite humbling, if you think about it. Look, look at this verse on the screen. Sodom and Gomorrah were the most evil and wicked pagan cities, and they were annihilated. And here's what the text says. That is what Israel would become unless the Lord would have intervened. Think of it, God's chosen people, the most favored people in the world, were on their way to becoming the worst pagan wickedness and to destruction apart from God's restraining grace. That, that is so humbling for us this morning as well. We too must remember that we were destined for being apart from God had it not been for his grace in our lives. You and I were we're on our way to being like Sodom and Gomorrah if God did not step in and stand in the way and save you. So let's be humble and let's be grateful. Let's be thankful. You know, we're not a very humble people anymore. One of the ways that this shows up in our lives is sometimes the way we pray. I was, I was recently um, watching Tony Evans' son, Jonathan Evans, talk about this, and he said, you know, sometimes we come to God with almost like a sense of entitlement when we pray. Uh, speaking for God here, he said, like I owe you something. <laughs> you can't tell me what I'm supposed to do. I'm God. You can't say, well, it should have been this way. Because without my victory and what I have done, all of you would be on the doorsteps of hell. I don't owe you anything. You owe me everything. See, if we understand God's mercy and God's grace, then, then it will make us humble. It will make us grateful. It will make us, us thankful. The problem is, largely as a culture, we, we have forgotten this, and we are not a humble people. We are a prideful uh, people. It reminds me of something sociologists Christian Smith and Melinda Denton said in their research. They said, there, there is a religion in America, for those of you who don't think America is very religious, there is a religion in America. It's called moralistic therapeutic deism. Moralistic therapeutic deism. Now think about those three words. They say in their research that th- this religion believes that God is a cosmic therapist or a divine butler, ready to help out when, when needed, We're supposed to be good people because good people will go to heaven. But this whole idea runs completely counter to the gospel of Jesus Christ in every way. We're not saved by earning our way up the good works ladder, nor is God the divine genie dispensing wishes at our command. That is no gospel at all. Uh, Going back to the VeggieTales creator, Phil Vischer, he said it this way, American Christians are drinking a cocktail that's a mix of the Protestant work ethic, the American dream, and the gospel, and we've intertwined them so completely that we can't tell them apart anymore. Friends, we must be very careful about mixing together the story of the gospel with the story of our culture. They, they are not the same. The gospel is not about our work ethic or the American dream. It's not about moralism or 
working hard even in the therapist's office. The gospel is about the death, burial, and resurrection of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, for the sins of the world. That's the gospel that Paul says has not failed here. Rather, that's the gospel that's expanding all over the world through the wideness of the mercy of God. And that leads us to point two. How come everybody doesn't accept this gospel? Well, there's a stumbling stone. Paul says there's a stone of stumbling. He picks up this theme in verse 30. Let's take a look. He says, what then shall we say? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith, but the people of Israel who pursued the law as the way of righteousness have not attained their goal? Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. Notice the contrast in these verses between those who pursued and those who did not pursue. Those who pursued righteousness did not obtain it, whereas those who, did, those, um, those who pursued righteousness did not obtain it, whereas those who did not pursue righteousness did obtain it. Paul is comparing and contrasting two different kinds of righteousness in this section. He says, notice in your own Bible in verse 30, the righteousness based on faith versus the law of righteousness. Later on in chapter 10, verse 3, he'll say the righteousness of God versus their own righteousness. And then later on in chapter 10, verse 5 and 6, he'll say the righteousness based on the law versus the righteousness based on faith. I want you to notice Paul's reasoning very carefully. Stay with me here, guys. Stay with me. Why is it that the Jewish people have been largely unbelieving? Answer, because they are attempting to establish their own righteousness. As a reminder, Rachel talked about this in today's children's video, right? In order to get into heaven, we have to have a perfect 100% right living, which, which the Bible, that's what the Bible calls righteousness. Think of it like a report card. You need all A pluses, you need a 4.0 to get into heaven. The problem is that you and I just, just opened up our report cards and we've got a list of failing grades in there. Paul reminds us that the only place we can acquire an A-plus for perfect living is from faith in Jesus and, and from the love of God poured out in Jesus, as Rachel explained earlier. And so Paul actually holds up the Gentile believers here as positive examples to his Jewish friends who are embracing this gospel of justification by faith alone. He says the Gentiles got it right. But unlike the Gentiles, the Jews thought that there was another way to be saved to get that perfect report card because their plan was to follow the rule of the law. But our text says that ironically, by pursuing the law, they did not arrive at the law. In other words, they did not find what they were seeking. Why? Because we cannot ever be good enough. God's standard for entrance into heaven is perfection, and all of us fall short, right? Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's you, that's me. The Jews missed the whole idea of salvation by faith. Faith in who? Faith in Jesus. And so this whole idea of Jesus and his work on our behalf being, being the only way we can get to God is not a popular proposition in our day or back then either. It never has been. It's always been kind of offensive, right? This is why Paul says next, they stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, see, I lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall, and the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. Here in this text, Paul draws out this image of a stone from Isaiah chapter 8 and Isaiah chapter 28 that people stumble over. 
It's, it's almost like Israel was walking down a path trying to keep the law, but their eyes were so focused on the path that they didn't notice this huge boulder that was right in the middle of the path. They just tripped over it. Have you ever seen somebody that's uh, walking while they're texting and, and you see that they, they, they bump into something like they just didn't see it coming? Uh, like, look at this poor woman who fell into this stairwell. The, the, the two girls walking by, they, they don't even know what to do. This is pretty hilarious. If you go to YouTube and just type in walking while texting fails, you'll, you'll see a lot of examples of this. One time I saw somebody who was at the mall walking down uh, the, 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 the hallway in the mall and they, they walk right into a fountain, went head over heels into the just totally like baptism in the fountain there, totally soaking wet. Just, just hilarious. This is Israel. They, they tripped over the stone. They, they, they didn't understand that Christ was right there. They didn't see him there. Not, not, not because he wasn't there. It's because their focus was on their own walk, their own righteousness. Paul says this tripping was actually predicted in the Old Testament. Look at the prophecies from the book of Isaiah. Again, Paul says God's word has not failed. His word is actually being fulfilled. Jesus was a stumbling stone back then. And and friends, can we just be honest? Jesus is still a stumbling stone in our day. The reason for that is because, first of all, people hate being told what to do. We, we, I mean, think about how some people are behaving in this quarantine. We do not want people telling us what to do. We want to do what we want, when we want, with who we want. Stop telling us what, what to do, right? But the only thing that we hate more than being told what to do is being told that we're actually not able to do something, that we don't measure up, that we're unable. That's actually really offensive. This is the stumbling stone of the cross, Philosopher Alfred Jules Ayer said the doctrine of the atonement of the cross is intellectually contemptible and morally outrageous. Bertrand Russell, the famous atheist, called the cross the doctrine of cruelty. Robert Funk from the Jesus Seminar called the doctrine of the cross subrational and subethical. See, friends, this is what the Bible calls the stumbling stone. When you share the good news, you can't help but have to share the bad news. People don't want to hear the bad news. They say, wait, 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 hold on right there. Are you saying that I deserve God's punishment? Are you saying that those of us who've worked hard our whole lives to improve ourselves and improve our society are in the same place as those who live their lives in complete filth and depravity? How dare you? How dare you? How dare you? That's the stumbling stone. That's what happened to the Jews in the first century. And even though this is a complete fulfillment of the scriptures, Paul says he's still totally heartbroken about what has happened. Chapter 10, verse 1. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Notice Paul's heart here and notice He also gives his Jewish friends credit for their great zeal. That word zeal there is a commendable characteristic. It means they were radical in their commitment. Their their devotion to God was praiseworthy. After all, these were religious people. They took their faith seriously, but notice he says their problem was they lacked knowledge. Zeal without knowledge is dangerous. Think of a young man who, who is zealous to impress a young woman and, and zealously and sincerely buys her a beautiful bouquet of flowers. 
not realizing that she's desperately allergic to them. Zeal without knowledge can be dangerous. Paul says just like that, when we bring our good works into God's presence, thinking that they are pleasing to him apart from the work of Christ, this is not good. Right? All of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. Paul says in Philippians 3 that all of his great deeds were like rubbish before the Lord. And Paul knows this firsthand, right? This is his own personal story as a Pharisee. This is what he did. He realized that he could not obtain righteousness by the law. He realized he couldn't just keep trying harder and harder and harder and harder. It's not that hard to see why the Jews of the first century struggled with this, is it? We struggle with the same thing. Even those of us who who actually know and understand and embrace the gospel, from time to time, even we can slip back into this way of thinking. There's There's a classic book on the spiritual life written by Richard Lovelace, and in that book he said this. He said, we all automatically gravitate toward the assumption that we are justified by our level of sanctification. He goes on to say, we start each day with our personal security resting not on the accepting love of God and the sacrifice of Christ, but on our present feelings or recent achievements in religion. Since, he says, these arguments will not quiet the human conscience, we are inevitably moved to a self-righteousness which falsifies the record in order to achieve a sense of peace. See, I think there's two traps in the Christian life. There's a trap of zeal without knowledge, and then there's a trap of knowledge without zeal. Knowledge without zeal leads to a kind of passivity, like, hey, you know, uh, it, just, it, do, it doesn't lay hold of that for which Christ has laid hold of me. And we need to fight that. Like, the Christian life is a war. We have to fight the good fight of faith. But zeal without knowledge is this self-righteousness that where I depend on myself so that if I have a bad day, I think, well, you know, God's probably mad at me today. But then if I have a good day, and I think God is impressed, that is karma. That is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel says, Dave, your righteousness has nothing to do with your performance. It's an alien righteousness. So let me ask you just as we're thinking about this, which direction do you lean toward? Do you Do you lean toward knowledge without zeal, or do you lean toward zeal without knowledge? Paul says these Jews, they had had this zeal with no knowledge. That's why he goes on to say in verse 3, since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Look at those four words, they did not submit. Paul says, now what does that mean? In other words, they did not respond to Jesus in faith. Douglas Moo, the commentator on Romans, says, God's righteousness is an active force to which one must humbly and obediently subordinate oneself. Like like a boss talking to a direct report, Paul is leveling the charge of insubordination. Why won't we submit? The, The reason why this is difficult for us is because deep down in the human heart, we all struggle with pride. We become stiff-necked. We become a stubborn people. Can I ask you a question? If you're you're watching today and you have not yet embraced Jesus as your Savior and you're still looking into the claims of Christianity, I think that that's great. Get all the answers you need. I, I would love to help you with that. But is it possible that your issue is not merely intellectual? Is it possible that there's also an insubordination going on that you will not submit to God? 
this passage contains really good news for you, but it also contains a serious warning about a serious infraction. Paul says, when you insist that you don't need God and you're, you're good enough on your own, you're being insubordinate and you're not just doing that passively. You are actively refusing to bow the knee. So the choice is ours. And the reason this is all so serious, right, is that it dishonors Christ as our righteousness. God says this, quoting John Piper on this text, perfect divine righteousness performed by my son is the only righteousness that will justify in my court. You shall obey me through faith, but all your imperfect obedience will be the fruit of your justification, not the root. My son alone will have that honor. And that's what leads us to movement number three, the, the climax of the covenant. Taking my language here from N.T. Wright, as Paul finishes this section with one of the most famous and succinct theological assertions in all of his letters, chapter 10, verse 4, he, he says this, Christ is the culmination of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Christ is the culmination of the law so that there might be righteousness for everyone who believes. Say that together with me at home. Ready? Christ is the culmination of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Your, your translation at home, it might say Christ is the end of the law. Uh, the Greek word is the word telos. It means the goal or the end point. I, I like the word culmination. It, it, it's as if like the Old Testament was, was more like a journey up a mountain and Christ is at the top of the mountain. The word end here is actually the same exact root word that Jesus cried out on the cross in John 19, verse 30, when he said, it is finished. Tetelestai, it is the telos, he is, he is finished, he is the, it is the end of the work. Uh, th this is the good news of the gospel, Christ is the end of the law. Now, I want to read you a very technical quote from Chuck Swindoll just to get the full meaning of what Paul means here. Pay careful attention to these words. It's so good. Swindoll says, Jesus achieved the demands of the law in that he kept it perfectly. Jesus fulfilled the intent of the law in that he pleased the Father with his obedience. Jesus completed the purpose of the law in that he fulfilled all its requirements. Jesus executed the covenant of the law in that he claimed the rewards of obedience. Jesus perfected the requirements of the law in that he exceeded its expectations. And finally, Jesus terminated the need for the law in that he became the word of God to humanity. This whole section of Romans reminds me of one statement that Jesus made when he was walking the earth and he gave his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. This was a huge statement when he made it in Matthew chapter five. We might miss it in our time, but I assure you those listening to him did not miss it when he said this. Jesus said this, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Let me put that on the screen for you. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them but to fulfill them. This was such a huge statement. Look, look at what Jesus is claiming here. He's claiming that the entire Old Testament funneled down to him as a person. All the prophets of the Old Testament were prophesying ultimately about him. All the deeds of the Old Testament somehow reflectively pointed forward to him. 
Jesus said, the law leads to me, and the law ends in me. All of it was pointing to me. Who would say that? It was as if the entire Old Testament was like a cocoon in which the Savior of the world could be prepared until he was birthed. But once Jesus came and once he lived the life that you and I should have lived and died the death that you and I should have died and rose victoriously, it was finished. This is why Jesus says in John chapter 5, you study the scriptures diligently because you think in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. Jesus is, 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 is the summary of all of the scriptures. Remember in Luke chapter 24, after he was raised from the dead, he went on a walk with two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And, and it says that he was explaining the scriptures to them, the law, the prophets, and the writings, and showed them what the scriptures said concerning himself. See, that's why Paul says elsewhere in Colossians chapter 3, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ. Or as Paul says here, Christ is the end of the law. Christ is the culmination of the law so that there might be righteousness for everyone who believes. Or as the writer to the Hebrews says, lo, I come. In the volume of the scroll, it is written of me. There's only one hero in the scriptures. It is Jesus Christ, the end of the law. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back on stage for one final song, and I'll, I'll close where I began with an update from Phil Vischer and VeggieTales. Uh, those of you watching may or may not know that this past fall, uh, they began to reboot the VeggieTales series, and, and he was asked by Christianity Today if this reboot would be any different than it was before, and he, he said yes. He said, it's so much easier to teach morality. It's so much easier just to tell a Bible story, to pull a moral value out of it and end with a Bible verse. There is value in that. That's kind of where everybody starts. But if you stop there, you never actually get to the message that leads to regeneration, that leads to new life, that leads to the fruit of the Spirit. And that's the core of the gospel. And so here's what he said I want to do. He said, I want to actually explain the whole faith to kids now. Rather than just saying, this is how the Bible wants you to behave, instead saying, this is the story that the Bible places you inside of, which is the gospel. Amen, Phil. May you all find your place in the big story of the Bible made possible because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the end of the law. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Help us to make Jesus Christ the focus of our lives and leave him there, as Hebrews chapter 12 tells us, fixing our eyes upon him. And then by your grace, we will find ourselves, as we gaze upon his beauty, becoming more and more like him. Help us to find ourselves falling in love with Jesus more and more and more. God, we ask that you would consume us with the passion for your glorious Son, and that passion, as it begins to occupy our heart, will conquer a thousand sins in our lives. As we begin to love what he loves and to hate what he hates and to become more and more like our Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name and in his name alone we pray. Amen. Amen.